Tired of blogs? <laughs> Me too. Moby Lives Radio starts now. the intergalactic headquarters of Melville House Publishing in Hoboken, New Jersey, aka the left bank of New York City, it's Moby Lives Radio. Greetings, Earthlings. It's Thursday, the 15th day of December in 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. On today's show, we'll be talking to novelist Stephen Dixon. He's recently published his 25th book of fiction, and we'll be asking him how he feels about being called an avant-garde writer. We'll also be hearing from our Canada correspondent, George Murray of BookNinja.com. But first, here's some news from the book world. The United States House of Representatives yesterday voted overwhelmingly in favor of renewing the USA Patriot Act the decree that allows the government to secretly seize the records of libraries and bookstores in acts of surveillance on their patrons. By a vote of 251 to 174, the Congress passed the bill along to the U.S. Senate for it to vote on the act before its expiration at the end of the year. Meanwhile, pressure mounted on Senate Republicans to follow the lead of the House of Representatives. In the face of a threatened filibuster by a bipartisan group, President Bush urged senators to vote in favor of renewing the act, saying that, quote, in the war on terror, we cannot afford to be without this law for a single moment, close quote. Opponents of the bill did pick up two new supporters when Republican Senator Chuck Hagel and Democrat Ron Wyden joined their ranks. However, Senate Republican leader Bill Frist said he believed the deep Democratic split in the House vote represented the necessary momentum for him to get the bill passed in the Senate. He rejected a compromise offer and promised the bill would withstand a filibuster and be passed as is before the Senate adjourned for the holidays. Some of the biggest names in international literature have issued a statement in support of Turkish writer Orhan Pamuk, author of the best-selling My Name is Red, as he prepares to go to trial on charges of insulting Turkey. Pamuk has been brought up on charges of, quote, denigrating the Turkish national identity, close quote, for telling a Swiss magazine last February that, quote, one million Armenians and 30,000 Kurds were killed in these lands, and nobody but me dares to talk about it, close quote. He could face up to three years in jail if convicted, but authors Jose Saramago Gabriel Garcia Marquez, Carlos Fuentes, John Updike, Umberto Eco, Mario Vargas Llosa, and Gunter Grass released a statement urging the Turkish government to drop the charges. They say Pamuk's comments were not a crime because he was simply reporting on actual historic events. Even as it seems to have at least temporarily survived a takeover bid by the owner of England's largest bookselling chain, the country's second largest bookselling chain, Otakers, says it's under assault from a price war. 
As part of a stock market announcement made in the wake of the lapse in the takeover attempt by HMV, the owner of the Waterstones chain, Otakers gave notice, according to a Times of London report, quote, that it has found trading conditions challenging and that sales were dipping. The company release cited, uh, quote, unprecedented levels of price discounting in rival bookstores in the run-up to Christmas. The statement said, Otakers has chosen largely not to engage in this price war, but that it would nonetheless have to respond by taking appropriate steps to reduce costs. Close quotes. No word on what that meant, but the announcement, along with the revelation that it had so far spent two million pounds defending itself in the takeover bid against HMV, caused stock value in Otakers to plummet 4.5%, just minutes after trading for the day began. A little-known children's book author who suffers from dyslexia has won the 21st annual Nestle Children's Book Prize over famed writer Philip Pullman. Sally Gardner was announced of the winner of the award yesterday for her book, I, Coriander. The British prize is worth 2,500 pounds. A story in The Independent says Gardner, now 52, was 14 years old by the time she was able to master the ability to read. Quote, I honestly never thought it would be possible to write because of my dyslexia. She tells the Independent, but she goes on to say that once she understood ideas and storytelling were what counted more than spelling, she was able to forge ahead in her efforts to become a writer. Quote, that I can't spell is a great irritant to people having to deal with my manuscripts, she says, but it's the ideas that count. Close quote. And finally, a survey by CNN has determined an answer to the age-old question. Which is more important, book smarts or street smarts? Citing college dropouts from Bill Gates and Steve Jobs to Ted Turner and David Geffen, the survey cites a recent conclusion on Donald Trump's The Apprentice to say that nonetheless, while, quote, street smart folk made an impressive showing, it was a book smart contestant who walked away with the prize. Well, on the other hand, a job with Donald Trump, you, you call that a prize? Or as one of the successful dropouts cited in the article says, quote, neither book smarts nor street smarts is as helpful as a rich relative. And that's the news, or is it? For Thursday, the, first, the 15th of December, 2005. I'm Dennis Johnson. It's December 15th, and on this day in literary history in 1815, the great novelist of English manners, Jane Austen's novel Emma, was published. It was the last of her work to appear during her lifetime, and she was 39 at the time. Austen's writing focused mainly on the events of middle-class provincial life. With great compassion and humor, she depicted the minor landed gentry, country clergymen, and their families, and a world in which marriage determined not only a woman's social status, but her fate. And Emma is no different. The novel features the charming, yet meddlesome, Emma Wodehouse. Emma is a plucky matchmaker whose meddling in her friends' lives goes awry, but the story of her mismatched loves 
ends happily. Though it is written in a jaunty comic tone, Austen declared when she set out to write the novel that, quote, I'm going to take a heroine whom no one but myself will much like. And originally, perhaps she succeeded. 2,000 copies were printed, 563 of which, more than a quarter, were still unsold after four years. She earned less than 40 pounds from the book during her lifetime. Though posterity has changed its judgment, and Emma has gone on to great fame. Sir Walter Scott wrote of the novel saying, quote, Miss Austen has a talent for describing the involvements and feelings and characters of ordinary life, which is to me the most wonderful I have ever met with. Austen published all her books anonymously, yet her novels were noticed by critics and literature lovers alike. One of her admirers was the Prince Regent, and through the Prince's librarian, Austen was invited to dedicate one of her works to the Prince. She complied to the royal command in her dedication of Emma, though her reluctance to do so is quite apparent in the wording. It reads, To His Royal Highness the Prince Regent, this work is, by His Royal Highness's permission, most respectfully dedicated by His Royal Highness's dutiful and obedient humble servant, the author. Austin's pluck was not just reserved for her heroines. I'm Valerie Marians, and that's This Day in Literary History. I know my chicken. You got to know you a chicken. I'm George Murray of BookNinja.com with the Moby Lives Canada Report. Canada's book scene received some much appreciated international press this week. First in the London Guardian, Jeremy Mercer's article on his top ten bookshops include two Canadian stores, one in Paris and the other in Toronto. This ain't the Rosedale Library in Toronto, and Abbey Books in Paris came in at numbers eight and nine respectively. I've been to both of these shops and can attest that they are two of the best around. Participants in Toronto's literary scene are particularly thrilled to see This Ain't get a mention. It's right in the heart of the gay village in Toronto and has a reputation among the literary community as one of the better independent bookstores in the country. In other international attention news, much of Toronto, which is Canada's largest city but not its capital, that would be Capuscasing, was surprised and delighted by the appearance of an article on Vanity Fair's website highlighting the city's literary scene. Online editor, online editor Anderson Tepper's expose of Toronto is extensive, if not thorough. Citing his fetish for Torontonians such as Michael Ondaatje, Margaret Atwood, and Wunderkind David Besmages as impetus, Tepper headed to Toronto for the International Festival of Authors in October and found the big smoke all it's cracked up to be. And I quote, Toronto, a mini New York, an anti-New York, a younger, more global, more tolerant New York, I didn't want to leave this city, with its neighborhoods shoulder to shoulder, its puddled streets reflecting a maze of steel and shimmering words, where its literary godfather, Michael Andace, seemed about to materialize around every corner. Toronto's traditionally rampant Manhattan envy is having a relaxed week. That was mine, not his. And speaking of Michael Andace, it's probably best to fear him finding him around every corner because it turns out he's quite warped. 
this will come as no surprise to some, but did come as a surprise to his publisher, House of Anansi, who was intent on releasing his new book of poetry, The Story, before holiday gift-buying season. But when the book returned from the printer, the cover was warped beyond repair, and Anansi decided to pulp the entire 10,000-copy run. This says two things about Anansi. One, they have great integrity and commitment to their authors. And two, they are publishing books of poetry in print runs of 10,000. The book was intended as part of a fundraiser for World Literacy of Canada, and its royalties have been slated to help support literacy work with women and children in India. It will be reprinted this spring. That's it from Canada, where a contest was held to come up with a national phrase to match the old American standard, as American as apple pie or baseball. The winning entry was, as Canadian as possible under the circumstances. I'm George Murray of BookNinja.com with the Moby Lives Canada Report. Stephen Dixon, Phone Rings is your 25th book. That's a lot of books. Um, what's, your, what's your writing schedule like? I try to write every single day. Um, what I usually do is get all the other work out of the way, and, and then I get busy with my fiction writing, the other work being my schoolwork, you know, reading manuscripts and the housework, and even... Uh, the cooking for the dinner. I usually make a salad and, a, and, and prepare the dinner in the morning so it'll be out of the way so I could continue to write one, once I've started writing. Every, every day? Uh, will you I, write? I work every day. Yeah. The, the only, in fact, you know, I, with one of my novels, Frog, I wrote it for five and a half years straight and the day after I finished it, I started another novel. <laughs> so that's the way I work. No rest for the weary. Um, well, the protagonist of Phone Rings, like the protagonists of your last novel, Old Friends, seems to have a lot in common with you. Are you writing thinly veiled autobiography? A little less than thinly veiled. I do take liberties with my own life. But in Phone Rings, you know, there are, for instance, it is about seven, the family does have seven children, and I come from a family of seven children, but the second oldest brother did not die at 19. He's still alive and hale and hearty at the age of about 77. Um, I do have a cat named Streak, who, and I, the cat in the novel is named Streak, but we never buried, I never buried him alive, and he was never resurrected from death. Uh, so you could say you know, that I've taken liberties, but, but, uh, but it's, not, it's not an autobiographical novel. Mm-hmm. How, how do the real-life counterparts of your characters, uh, with the exception of Streak, feel about their fictional selves? Well, for instance, my older sister, uh, Marguerite, also known as Bunny, 
uh, objected to the name that uh, I gave the oldest sister in the novel Harriet, while my younger sister, my younger surviving sister, Pat, uh, who uh, objected that I didn't uh, include the younger sister more in the novel. So some people object, some people don't, but uh, usually for pretty thin or light reasons. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, as that answer might uh, might intimate to people, Phone Rings has a pretty large cast of characters. Um, in fact, uh, quite a quite a larger cast than the previous book, and it also covers a longer period of time and seems to move around a bit more. Um, was this conscious and purposeful, or or what does that represent about your work? It's a large, larger cast of characters because in this this is the only novel that I've ever written, or the only work of fiction that I've ever written where I've had seven children in one family, um, and also because it does encompass such a long period of time, uh, 65, 70 years, maybe even more. Um, there are a lot of people who have come through uh, Stu's, the narrator's life in that period. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, well, there are some other unusual things about uh, about uh, phone rings, for example. Um, if I'm not mistaken, and as your publisher I should know this, this is your first book with chapters, is it not? The well, first book with uh, numbered chapters. Mm-hmm. I had another novel, Fall and Rise, uh, which um, had um, uh, title chapters. Mm-hmm. There were seven uh, chapters, and, and they were titled The Apartment, The Bar, The Room, The Apartment, you know, and chapters like that. But this is the first one with numbered chapters. Yeah, yeah. Well, this leads me to another question, which is um, beyond the the narrative aspect of, of your stories, um, there's the way you tell them. I mean, you're often described as an avant-gardist. Is that a fair description? Um, I'd rather call myself an innovator. And, and the reason that I innovate is that it makes the writing more exciting when I write it. So I'm always trying new ways of telling old things. Mm-hmm. Um, and th- that's why I also have told the same story in many different ways, because I'm telling it in many different styles. Mm-hmm. Um, but I am uh, an innovator, and I guess I am an avant-gardist in that I don't uh, follow the the uh, ways of, of or the I just don't write the way other people do. I, I, I intended long ago, 40 years ago, to have an individual style, and then when I had that style, to have individual styles. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, what were some of your writerly goals for phone rings? Phone rings, the goal, um, I don't know if I had a, a goal. Uh, uh, let's see, what was my goal? The goal was to frame a novel with uh, a phone call, and then the uh, the result of the phone call maybe a few minutes later, mm-hmm. and in 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 sandwich in between is the in, entire novel, a series of of uh, reminiscences uh, with his brother and 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 the story of a of a family of seven children and two parents, and it was a, it was a very ambitious goal I, I thought to sort of concentrate on on a couple of individuals particularly and on the family generally. Yeah. Well, um, it is an amazingly uh, moving story. It's a grand saga, take, uh, you know, just sweeping through this family through time. 
um, with 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 lots of tragedies and taking place in tumultuous times. And at the same time, um, one thing that I think is consistent to your work that is rarely commented upon is the sense of humor. Um, it's, it's often quite antic, and other times it's very sly. Um, I, gu I guess the question is, how important is humor to you? Well, humor is part of life, just as tragedy is. And I try to get it all in, work it all in. Yeah. The humorous parts are when uh, they're, they're not dramatic or tragic parts. Yeah. The tragic parts are parts that can't be humorous because they're too tragic. Mm -hmm. Humor has always been very important to me as a writer. Important in that I even once said, I try to be humorous, and if I fail, then the story becomes dramatic and tragic. <laughs> well, you know, actors often say that um, that comedy is harder than than acting uh, in a drama. Is that true of writing as well? Is comedy hard to write? No, it's not. It comes easy. I mean, I, it, it, I don't. I, I don't. I mean, in other words, I, I try to be humorous, but it's, um, but, but it, but it's, it's very easy for me to be humorous in a humorous situation on the page. I don't have any problem at all. I mean, I could, I write, you know, a lot of dialogue, and and I feel a lot of my dialogue is very funny. Mm -hmm. Well, um, what's next for you? Do you find yourself trying to develop things? Um, from book to book, or uh, do you try to just do something completely different each time out? Yeah, completely different. Mm -hmm. um, well, I mean, some books have a, I mean, there's sometimes one book will sort of slide into the next one. Mm -hmm. uh, the character might be similar, but the situation uh, will be different. Mm -hmm. uh, the My new novel, which I've just finished the first draft of, it took me 11 months. And it's going to be a haul to to finish it, to you know to to you know refine it till it's a complete novel. It's a completely different novel uh, that I that I've ever done. I mean, I, I just sort of fall into a a a kind of style and structure, and then I see that it's working, and then the whole novel is that style and, and, and structure. And this one is is composed of about thirty chapters. And each chapter begins where the last chapter uh, ended. So, um, is, is this a normal writing process for you? I mean, what, do, what you, do you do you, do you generally go through a first draft and then go back like no, this? this is, I've only started doing that with old friends and uh, and phone rings. Uh -huh. What I usually did, what I had done with the twenty-three books before that. Uh, was uh, go from page to page. We find each page as it goes along till till the story is completed. Mm -hmm. uh, and when I finish the book, the first draft, you might say, but a very refined first draft, the book is finished. In other words, I didn't go back to it. Right. But I did with uh, old friends, and I did with phone rings, and I, I like the, the new way. Mm -hmm. It's uh, it, it's it, it, I think it's making it's making it into a better book. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, it's, it's something new and different with me, and, and now I have this, you know, 300 pages of the first draft, and it will probably end up being 350 pages of the mm -hmm. second and, mm -hmm. and final draft. Mm -hmm. um, let me ask you just a few more questions about the process for you. Do you do, you do any outlining, or what kind of no, preparation do you do before you go into the big game? No, I mean, you know, the outline, I have no outline, let's say, for the new one. Mm -hmm. It just mm -hmm. ended... Each, as I said, each chapter, let's say, he ends pouring coffee, pouring mm -hmm. water into a 
coffee pot, mm-hmm. and the next chapter ends, and the next chapter begins with him uh, taking the coffee out and, and doing something. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I, I don't know what each chapter, I don't know where the next chapter is going to go. I just know that it's, it was, and this is what really compelled me to, to go on, uh, mm-hmm. is that I always knew where I was going to start the next chapter, mm-hmm. and, and then I would just have to use my imagination as to what was going to happen in the next chapter. Mm-hmm. It's a story about a, you know, a guy's life. Again, uh, but I, I guess what I'm getting at is is you don't do um, you, you you don't need to know where it's going before no, you start. I, I like the idea that I don't need to know. Uh-huh. I like it because it, it, there's an element of surprise uh-huh. that that I find in 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 writing it. But usually by the uh, you know halfway through or three quarters of the way through, I know what the last chapter is going to be. Uh-huh just as I knew in this one what the last chapter was going to be. I just had to work my way there. Uh-huh. Well, let's close by going back to phone rings. Um, having read, uh, I, I can't say I've read all 25 yet, Stephen, I have to confess to you, but I've read most of them, and Phone Rings is a really kind of a special book. I'm not quite sure why I sensed that, but uh, I, I felt like in some ways it was one of the most personal books of yours. Um, and I'm wondering if it uh, if it was particularly special to you how you yeah. how it pl- how you feel it uh, is situated in your oeuvre. Yeah, I, I think it's a, it's a it's a very special book. I mean, I think it's maybe the most personal because you know you said you know uh, is this do I write is this is phone rings a thinly veiled biography mm-hmm. autobiography? Well, it, it probably comes as close to being autobiographical as any novel that I've ever read mm-hmm. that I've ever written. Excuse me. Uh, and that, that's what makes it personal and also because the story has has elements of, of truth to it uh, that uh, things that have happened uh, to me like the dead brother mm-hmm. uh, that uh, it's, it becomes you know a very you know personal uh, uh, um, story mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. well <clears throat> excuse me Stephen Dixon the author of Phone Rings and 24 other novels. Thank you for coming on Mobiles Radio. You're welcome. (laughs) And that's our show for Thursday, the 15th of December, 2005. Thanks to Stephen Dixon for coming on the show to talk about his new novel, Phone Rings. It's his 25th book of fiction, and it's from Melville House. Thanks, too, to George Murray of BookNinja.com for coming on to give us the skinny and the great white way. You might want to check out BookNinja.com. George knows a few things he didn't let on to today. Thanks also to our staff, engineer Andrew Steinmetz, as well as Kelly Burdick, Becky Kramer, and Valerie Marion. So welcome back, honey buns. Tomorrow, we're going to be talking bookstores. We're going to be talking to them. We're going to be talking about them. Which ones? You'll have to come back to see. We'll also be doing your letters to the editor. Until then, don't forget, that whale is out there, man. È una notte speciale. All'anfetamina. Le chiche esplodono e schizzano su muri. Là dentro. Una farfalla psichedelica bella, bellissima, scatena batticuori e vertiginoso qui si posi. Si chiama Venus Napalera. Numero di catalogo 269 V.
balera sposata bambina tra i neon di Las Vegas, Capulco, Manila, sirena o dea, dentro un peluche di estasie
ne pas dormir du tout.